Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. This is The Next Reel Shorts, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, everybody. As part of our series on the movie sites we love, today we're talking about one of our very favorite movie projects. Jamie Benning has become, through great effort and time, custodian to the behind-the-scenes media of our most iconic films of the 70s and 80s, through his ultimate fan creations, filmumentaries. In addition to his feature filmumentaries on the original Star Wars trilogy, Raiders, and Jaws, he's released a series of shorts furthering his contribution to the body of film analysis and cementing his position as primary source for schleps like Andy and me. Jamie Benning, welcome to the next reel. Thank you. That's a lovely introduction. I, I practiced it in front of a mirror for, for <laughs> many minutes. Before, before we get started, uh, uh, Jamie, could you tell us a little bit, for those who haven't seen a filmumentary, what is a filmumentary and what makes it stand out over other directors' commentary or, or behind-the-scenes featurettes? Well, a filmumentary, and well done for saying it correctly is quite a difficult word but it's quite easy to describe really it's the movie as you know it but you can watch that movie and watch it being made so the idea really behind it when I started was to get rid of those kind of lazy commentary tracks that just have a bunch of people talking over the film as they're watching I wanted to specifically dig up archive material as well as new material and apply it to that that film timeline. So not only commentary, audio, but also behind-the-scenes video, stills, animations, recreations of deleted scenes, um, and create the kind of uh, the ultimate making of experience. The thing that always strikes me when I watch these is just the vast quantity of stuff that you have um, compiled to put these together. I mean, it really blows me away. There's old old interviews, old TV programs with interviews, um, other behind-the-scenes projects, um, footage that I've never seen in other behind-the-scenes things. I mean, you really seem to scour the whole planet just trying to find whatever you can to go uh, to put into these things. So, uh, I mean, talk about what, what it really takes to kind of get all of this stuff together. I mean, how, how do you really uh, build these things? I mean, they're, they're fascinating, and I, I just can't imagine how long it takes to get it all. Yeah, well, you know, when I started doing these, it's I think it's 10 years ago this year, bizarrely. Um, I started with Happy building Empire. Happy yeah, anniversary. Exactly. I started with building Empire, um, about the Empire Strikes Back. And back then, even, you know, even 10 years ago, the internet and YouTube and all those kinds of things weren't as, you know, populated and accessible as they are today. Um, so building Empire was really a matter of contacting other fans through other means. Okay, there were internet chat rooms and things like that back then that were more common. There were bulletin boards and things like that, and obviously websites that there are now with with um, forums on. But it wasn't so easy to get video across the internet. Um, so I would um, swap stuff with people on old VHSs, um, 
maybe burn a DVD and swap it with someone. Because what I found when I was doing my research is when the films were released in the UK, we got different clips shown and different behind-the-scenes bits shown to, say, the release in France or Germany or Austria or Denmark or the States or Canada. So what would happen was I'd get all these different tapes through and I'd think, well, hang on, that, that three seconds there goes with that three seconds there. That one's from Germany, that one's from the United States. Put them together and I've got this six-second chunk that's not been seen in, in sort of any further context before. So it's really, um, I think I described it once before, as it starts off as a very kind of linear puzzle, like, okay, Mark Hamill's talking about Yoda at this point, this goes at the bit when he's with Yoda. But then you get loads of stuff of Mark Hamill talking about Yoda from 1979, when they're making the film, from 1980 when it's released, from 1997 when they re-released the special edition. So it then becomes this kind of three-dimensional puzzle where you've got all these different layers going through the ages of, of these people recounting those stories. So by my job then really is to create something interesting and create uh, like an interesting narrative. You know, with Star Wars Begins, which what I did in 2011, that took me years to make. Um, previously, I think Building Empire and Returning to Jedi had taken me eight, 16 months, something like that, 12 or 16 months. Um, Star Wars Begins took nearly four years. One of the questions we wanted to ask was, why did you choose Empire first? But I'm, I'm gathering the answer to that is sort of unraveling as you tell us the story of these things. Y you know, how do you know when you sit down to edit that you've captured everything that you need to tell a, a story about this film sufficiently? Well, with Empire Strikes Back, bizarrely, or with Building Empire, bizarrely, the reason I chose that film was because I knew there wasn't that much material available. <laughs> As crazy as that sounds, I wanted like a challenge because I thought, you know, it's always been talked about being the best Star Wars movie, but there's so much more material that I've seen on Star Wars and on Return of the Jedi. There's not that much on The Empire Strikes Back. And I thought there's got to be more out there. So it was really an experiment, that first one. I didn't know if it was possible. And talking to people on forums, they say, no, there's not enough material to fill it feature length. And I was trying to learn Apple Final Cut Pro. Um, and I, didn't, I wanted a project that I could really get my teeth into and something I really was passionate about. I've always been a big fan of the Star Wars movies, you know, born in 76. So I was just the right age when Empire came out in the UK. I think it was sort of late 1980 and re-released in 81. So I saw the double bill of Star Wars and Empire when I was five years old, you know, bang, perfect. Sure. I was surrounded by that stuff. So it, I wanted to do something I was passionate about. But at the same time, I wanted a challenge. I don't think I've realized entirely how much of a challenge that's going to be at the time. Um, and of course, with any project that you do, you get to a certain point and you kind of just have to release it um, into the wild, as it were. You know, It's like bringing up your children and at some point they have to leave home and you have to arm them with the tools that they need. And with them building Empire, I got just about as much as I could to make what I wanted to and of course, it didn't turn out exactly the way I'd imagined it turned out better. In fact, I was very pleased with the results. But um, as soon as I release it, of course, then I hear an interview with somebody I've never heard an interview with before that worked on the film. And, you know, there's so many thousands of people that work on these movies. It's very difficult to make a fair representation of that film. Somebody could have gone and made, try and, or somebody could have tried to make the same thing I made and come up with something completely different, I'm sure. I mean, I know with Stars Begins, I could have made that probably five times over with the amount of material that I found. 
Sure. Um, well, and and you know, with you you could really follow in in you know the benefactor's uh, steps and release special editions and <laughs> just go ahead and yeah. change it again, you know, and release it again. Why not? <laughs> There's one thing I did do. I did release a later uh, a second version of Returning to Jedi and Building Empire purely because there was a couple of mistakes in it. Mm. Um, I don't want to go all Lucas on you, but there was a couple of bits I wasn't quite happy with when I released it. You know, it was just me making it. All right, a lot of people helped me and sent me clips and gave me advice and things like that, and I learned a lot from people online. But it was just me, and when I pressed upload, that was it. And when you're in these projects, you see beyond some of the mistakes sometimes, and the little there might be a flash frame, and then when you watch it back, it just annoys the hell out of you. So I did re-release those for a Miami underground film festival that I was invited to show the films at. Um, and, uh, or Muff, as it was nicely named. Um, <laughs> so so um, I did that, and they've stayed. I've not, I've not tinkered with anything since. The only thing I did do with Star Wars Begins was I, because I, I didn't have an HD version of Star Wars back then, so what I did go back and do was not upscale the, the video. Well, I upscaled it, but I didn't replace it with an HD version, but I did upscale the subtitles and the graphics just so they were that little bit sharper um but uh, they're done you know they're done and i remember when i released stars begins the following day i was listening to bbc radio in in my car and there's dennis lawson who played wedge antilles famously not very vocal about his um his role um i think he was asked back for the recent um, force awakens but turned it down um talking about playing wedge i'd never heard that before and i thought oh my god this would have been absolute gold you know but of course, it's out there now. People are watching it. I can't change the video. Um, and uh, Star Wars Begins was the one that really seemed to capture everyone's imagination because I think it was just um, everybody was. I, I got a lot of letters from people, a lot of emails from people, and posts and comments from people saying I was so disillusioned with Star Wars, all the cartoons and the comics and the games and those blooming prequels. But watching Star Wars Begins, it's reminded me what I loved about Star Wars. Absolutely. Um, and that's when it all kind of went a bit crazy and I got interviewed for newspapers and radio and, and things. So it's, uh, to be honest, I'm just pleased that there are people out there that like them because I do them for myself, really. I do them because I'm interested in, in them. You know, it's a sort of passion project because I don't earn any money from them. I lose money when I make them. But it's a hobby, you know. Um, and we all spend money on our, help, on our hobbies. So um, that's mine. You're uh, you're preaching to the choir on that one, <laughs> right? <yeah. laughs> I, I have like a familiar story. I uh, I have a nerd question that I have to ask. Uh, mm-hmm. Given the the volume of data that you collect from so many different source sources, mm-hmm. what kind of gear do you use to do this? How do you you know in terms of storage and platform and and uh, uh, can you talk a little, just briefly about that? Yeah, when I when I did Building Empire: Return to Jedi, I did it on a G4 Mac Power Mac. Um, which was a power PC back then, and it was secondhand, and I probably had, I don't know, it wasn't even half a terabyte then, it would have been 100 gig or something. So I'd, I'd encoded it in a video format that was quite um, efficient, and then when I went on to do the others, Inside Jaws, um, Radio in the Lost Ark before that, and before that, um, Stars Begins, I had a iMac. Um, mm. It's a 21 and a half inch iMac, five uh, i5, um, nothing special. Um, 
you know, render times take forever. I, I was just going to say, when you talk about 18 months to do these projects, I imagine a, a third of that is in render time. Well, a lot of it is rendering, yeah. watching it back and going, oh, my God, that's a bit still didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I'm, I've not got a preview monitor. I'm watching it all on one monitor. Right. Um, I, I, what I do now is I stream it to my TV and watch it on my TV um, from, from Premiere or render it and watch it from like a streaming Chrome, uh, Chromecast or something like that, just so I can see it on the big screen. Sure. Because I haven't got expensive kit. You know, it's all secondhand and the the investment mostly is on hard disk drives my wife can't believe how many hard disk drives i i seem to need um they're, they're piling up um but on on stars begins i lost everything uh two wow. years in whoa oh, no really and i had to, yeah i had to raise funds um of some very very kind donations via my website um to get the disk drive recovered and it recovered about 65 percent maybe so i had to redo a lot of work but um i mean one of the reasons it took that long was because i had kids and i'd moved house and i sort of changed jobs it wasn't just four years of constant work you Mm -hmm. know i'm trying to fit this in like you would a hobby you know you just do um or you know you might make be making some changes to your house after work or something like that so that's how i do it you know if my wife goes to bed and the babies and the, the kids go to bed and, and I'm still awake I'll do an hour or two and, and work on it like that so um yeah the resources I would say this is the great thing about it now isn't it though you know the kit doesn't have to be expensive it's possible to do these things um relatively cheaply you know the the thing that that excites me so much about the the work is I'm spent a lot of time this morning watching them and kind of catching up on some of my favorites uh is is that the the story that you're telling with these pieces is easily as engaging as the original material itself. I am every bit as interested in uh, Polanski's story uh, of making Chinatown uh, in mm-hmm. your, you know, so far what has been released of your Chinatown project, as I was in <laughs> watching Chinatown, one of my very favorite films. Uh, mm-hmm. How much thought do you go goes into just the craft of of telling the narrative story of the making of, um, you know, as around the story that you're telling the story about? Yeah, it's it's a really difficult one. I mean. It changes constantly, you know, as I find new material and now as I make new material myself. I mean, since raiding The Lost Ark, I've started doing my own interviews. So, for instance, on that film, I spoke to Mark Mangini, who was one of the sound editors. Um, And just finding those kind of unique perspectives that are around maybe a story we've already heard about. I mean, in the case of Inside Jaws, we all know the shark didn't work and... Spielberg went over budget and over time and everything. But what we might not know is that, you know, um, the story of an extra that worked on that film and had particular interactions with the cast and crew. And, I mean, there was one woman I spoke to who told me a story about how Richard Dreyfuss got so fed up waiting around in boats that he refused to wait out there until everything was working. So he went into a local knitting shop and was being taught by the (laughs) the old ladies there (laughs) how to knit. Unfortunately, that part of the interview was... Um, not recorded very well. We, it had dropout on it, so I was unable to use it. But it's little stories like that that you just don't come across in your, your kind of typical making of. And it is just, it, it takes so long to try and make um, make a story in there. I mean, 
there are certain parts of my film inventories they're jumping about you know there might be a clip of Harrison Ford from an official making of talking about the truck chase in Raiders and then it will cut to a picture of how um, Toad was originally going to have a mechanical arm with a machine gun in it and then it might jump to a behind the scenes shot with a stunt guy talking about so they do jump around a little bit but there is still quite a lot of effort put in there by me to try and make it seamless because you know it's all to do with using the sound cues and the music cues and sometimes I'm trying to cover dialogue and I'm trying to match the music the clean copy of the music um, so it sits synchronously with the music that's in the film so I can then have commentary over the top of it and there's a lot of all that stuff that goes on I mean some some of it works seamlessly some of it I have an absolute nightmare trying to get it to work and I end up having to make loops of things and, and really fiddle around but the story just over time just kind of starts coming out at you. You know, I think Lucas um, said in one of the documentaries, the official documentaries, that once you, once you create your characters, they almost begin to write the, the story themselves. And that's what it's like for me with these. I get these interviews, be they archive interviews or interviews I've done myself, and the story starts to emerge. You know, I'm, I'm doing a little project at the moment, um, and... I've done this interview with somebody that worked on some very well-known movies and I've got his story there. But when you start to move it around and that's what I love about the process of editing, you know, I'm not making anything misleading. I'm not joining two sentences together to make a different meaning. But when you move maybe different sentences around and different um, parts of the interview around, you can create, you can weave this new and interesting story from it and, Hopefully what I do with my film inventories is tell a story that hasn't been told yet. You know, I think one of the big things on Inside Jaws for me was that I didn't want to just hear from Dreyfus and Scheider and Spielberg and Gottlieb. I wanted to hear from a woman who happened to be on set every day and then worked as a photographer or a woman that happened to be on set most days because her boyfriend at the time was the props master and she ended up being in the movie. Those are the things to me that... Um, are interesting and what make the film unique. So to that end, though, I think something that um, some people at least probably think about is you're compiling a lot of footage. Uh, how do you deal with copyright issues? Or is that something you even have to really worry about? Well, it's a strange, gray, dark <laughs> area of copyright. Um, I think I've not had any troubles with copyright. I think that one of the reasons is I always state, and I think I've already said it in this interview, but I always state whenever I'm interviewed or whenever I release something that I'm not making any money from it. And I genuinely have not made a penny. I mean, it's cost me thousands of pounds to make these things. Um, you know, I buy books, I buy magazines, I travel to places, I buy equipment. Um, you know, I might have to trade something with somebody to get a piece of material that I want. <laughs> You're going to start calling J.B. Benning the guy with only eight fingers. <laughs> what, what kinds of stuff are you finding you're trading? <laughs> Not fingers. <laughs> but, you know, I did, I did end up trading, one point, a relatively valuable Star Wars figure to a guy to get a piece of material that I knew he had. I'm not going to say what it was, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it kind of made the film inventory that it was in, it made it actually really sing for me because it, I had something in there that had not been seen anywhere else. Um, I've not had any problems. <laughs> it would take a um, copyright lawyer 
probably twice as long as it takes me to create one <laughs> to work out where I've got everything from and who owns the rights to it. You know, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm being blasé about copyright. I think if somebody's created a work, it's their work. Nobody else should profit from it, you know, legally. Um, I stand in a, as I said, a kind of grey area. There have been filmmakers that say, sure, take the films, do what you want with them, just don't sell them. And I never do. I've, I've complained to eBay about people selling my documentaries. I've had stand-up arguments with people selling them at conventions and film fairs. Um, I go out of my way to make sure that nobody is selling them. I put them out there for people to watch, for people like me who love those movies and want to find out more about those movies, you know. One of the best things I've uh, come across is that some people are using them in education, and I think that's fantastic. This guy's using them as, as not only in film studies to show about filmmaking, but also about how you can draw from disparate sources and create a cohesive story, which I think is fantastic. Um, and I think as long as these are educational and as long as I'm not making profit, then I don't think really the studios have got a problem. And they're not critical pieces. I'm not saying, you know, so-and-so is an a-hole or whatever. Right, right. Um, I'm saying, these are the movies I love. Aren't they great? Listen to all these stories that people have got to, to tell about them. And, um, you know, I did have a little um, two-year chat with Warner Brothers. Um, I very nearly ended up doing one on Chinatown. We talked about Superman and Gremlins and Batman. and But I just think that um, maybe the studios are just a little bit afraid of, you know, the amount of work that has to go into it and, and therefore the cost. Because if I charged for my time in making these, right. they probably would be relatively expensive. But equally, I think all it would take is for a film company to open up their archive to me and say, help yourself, we own all of this material, licensing wouldn't necessarily be an, uh, an issue, and I'll do all the interviews, um, you know, my, I'll do the rest of the interviews myself. So I don't think they're expensive projects. So I think one of the other reasons, going back to the copyright issue, is that there's no equivalent to them. True. So I'm not taking away from a mark that already exists. And I think also film companies are becoming... <clears throat> more and more engaged with fans aren't they you know you look now it used to be that film companies went to conventions and said please come and watch our movie now they've got people you know fans saying oh he shouldn't have been cast in this role and petitioning and you know this <laughs> they know they've got right. to keep their fans on on their side so i think that probably plays a part in uh, the lack of problems I've, I've had about copyright. Well, I think that it's uh, you, you look at a scene like the original uh, Jabba scene and uh, you can mm. see like how many different uh, versions of that scene you're using to kind of put that yeah. entire chunk together. I think it's it's clear that uh, you'd be giving the, everyone in the copyright world uh, quite a challenge trying to uh, <laughs> sort all that mess out. So um, Yeah, but I mean, the reason I, the reason I had to do that, of course, is because it was never seen in its entire, entirety anywhere. So I had to um, look everywhere for all of those bits. That obviously exists in the Lucasfilm archive. Lucasfilm archive is complete from start to finish, and they've chosen never to release it. If they did say, Jamie, come in, do a filmy entry, here's our archives, um, then it wouldn't cost them anything. <laughs> it wouldn't be a legal issue. No, it, would be, it would be a straightforward process. So yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to convince, I'm in chatting to another studio at the moment for the last kind of six months and we're, we're getting close 
we're getting close. So guess where we are at the moment? We're at the legal stage. Oh, good <laughs> grief! That always boils down to that, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. you've been you've you've also aside from these great film entries, you've also been doing a lot of these little short bits. Now you've got the slimy piece of worm-ridden filth, life inside Jabba mm. the Hut, and you've got uh, blasted Biggs. Where are you? You've got little bits from Back to the Future or the David Bowie one you just put out for Dance Magic Dance. Yeah. A lot of those sorts of things now too, which is is great to see. What kind of uh, kind of uh, was your inspiration to start doing some little short ones? Partly it was circumstances. I have um, three daughters, so I have a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 16-month-old. <laughs> so this time, this time last year, I can hear you cringing, um, <laughs> wincing. Um, I, so this time last year, our uh, newest baby, Eve, was very young, you know. So when she was having a little afternoon nap or evening nap, I would quickly jump on the computer and I thought you know what making these short form things is probably the way to go in terms of how much time I have but also I think it's kind of a big investment for somebody to sit down and watch two and a half hours about Raiders of the Lost Ark Um, and as much as I think that's the selling point of film entries they are feature length and you can sit and watch your favorite movie and you can sit and watch it you know being pulled apart and put back together again but at the same time I think there is a big audience out there for these short form ones. Well, the great thing about the shorts is just that it, you know, you get excited uh, as as film nerds do. You get excited about the features and that they exist, and you, you, uh, you like. I find myself really loving the narrative uh, connection that I'm making with this work that you have done, and the shorts are like a tease that keep me invested in you as a personality and the stories that you're telling. And I like those so much. Um, you know, I feel like it is, it is uh, sort of building a bridge between the features that are yet to come, hopefully. It's like the Jabba the Hutt one. I think that it's so much fun watching Life Inside Jabba. But I, I, it's, it would be hard, I think you'd be hard-pressed to squeeze that extra, I can't remember how long it was, 10 minutes or so, into, the, into this flow that you have already established in returning to Jedi. Oh, and the big story, too. I mean, there, there's just not enough bigs in the original uh, trilogy to be able to fit that much of an interview into it. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when I thought about doing the shorts, I kind of automatically defaulted back to Star Wars um, because in making those feature-length filmumentaries, I thought you know, there are certain subjects that are worthy of another magnifying glass over the top of the magnifying glass I'd already put on it, you know. So I was able, I'd been in contact with Toby Philpot, the Jabba puppeteer, over a number of years since I did Returning to Jedi, in fact, and he sent me some call sheets that he had um, and told me a few stories that I think I um, relayed in in sort of text fact mm-hmm. form on that. Um, and I'd stayed in contact with him and he kindly invited me to a screening of the trilogy at the British Film Institute here in London last um, December, not last year, the year before. And um, I, that's where I met with Garrick Hagan, who played Biggs, and I met with Paul Blake, who played Greedo, and I met with Anne Skinner, who worked as a continuity editor on, on, um, on Star Wars. And, you know, just by talking to those people, you realise that, you know, they could probably talk about their their um, short few weeks working on those movies at, at great length, and there's even more to be told. And uh, I just set about. Toby seemed like the ideal candidate. He's a very very nice guy, and has kind of got his little stories down to a nice um, sort of ten or fifteen minute chunk that he does at conventions and at screenings and things. But he kind of said to me, there are certain aspects of that story that. He can never illustrate properly because there aren't any drawings um, that show properly what 
what it was like working in Jabba and you know there's footage here and there's footage there but you know and I I just went about trying to put it together and paint his words really and um each time I do one of these, I'm trying to sort of ramp things up a little bit. When you think about the, these sort of behind-the-scenes uh, features, uh, are there any behind-the-scenes filmmakers that you are inspired by or, or other behind-the-scenes projects that, are, that, uh, that particularly serve as your inspiration as you do this? Yeah, so the original uh, documentary from Star Wars to Jedi, The Making of a Saga that Mark Hamill narrated, that really turned me on to, you know, wow, there's a story behind the camera. And I think up until the point I'd seen Return of the Jedi, I was, you know, taken to the cinema to see it in London and I bought a making of book. And that was the first time I really realized films are made. <laughs> I thought they just happened, you know. <laughs> um and I've still got that book today and I used that um for my recent um Jabba short actually that book. So that's been a, a great resource over the years. But there are people like Laurent Bouzerou who is the making of guy, you know, he did the making of uh, the making of on are the DVDs of Indiana Jones and uh, Star Wars, and I think maybe he was involved with Back to the Future, and he did a big thing with Roman Polanski about his life and his his films. Um, in fact, when I was dealing with Warner Brothers, I was going through another company um, that do a lot of behind-the-scenes kind of marketing-based material, and working out of that same office was Laurent Bouzerou and I got hold of his email address and sent him an email telling him what an inspiration he's been to me and sadly he didn't reply maybe he thinks I'm just ripping him off but um <laughs> you know there are certainly making of films that I love you know I love um Lost in La Mancha about the Don Quixote story that Terry Gilliam tried to to cover and I think he's actually sure. revisiting that yeah uh, soon isn't he um also um burden of dreams the, the Werner herzog film about the making of fitzcarraldo is just <laughs> filmmaking insanity you know and i love all oh, those yes. uh, those stories so yeah I'm, I'm definitely drawing inspiration everywhere but for me these projects have always been about me being at home doing my research my my sort of fandom is this very quiet fandom i'm not the sort of person that goes to conventions and seeks autographs and I don't collect stuff, you know, I've got my original Star Wars things and from when I was a kid, but um, I'm not one of those people who is out there consuming um, the, maybe maybe I'm a bit a little bit cynical for that, but, um, you know, in, in recent times, I'm now, with my latest uh, filmimentary short um, I'm doing at the moment, I've actually got a crew together and we went and shot an interview um, and it looks great. I'm editing it at the moment and it's looking great and it is a step up and is a step towards doing what those heroes of mine and um, that I've just spoken about, you know, used can you to give do. Us a hint to, can you give us a hint as to what that one's about? Yeah, sure. Well, I spoke to Dave Barkley, who not only was the other half of Jabba the Hutt, who you would have seen uh, inside Jabba, um, right. the guy with the moustache who did the lip sync for Jabba. Sure. He was also the assistant puppeteer on Yoda. And he got in contact with me. Again, I'd been in contact with him before. I think when we were doing the Jabba doco, we were just trying to work out exactly where everyone was positioned and how Jabba worked. And, you know, again, piecing all these stories from Toby Philpott and Dave Barkley and then John Coppinger, who was the animatronics engineer, Mike Edmonds, who was in the tail, Richard Padbury, who did the smoke and all of that kind of stuff for Jabba, trying to piece this all together. So I'd been in contact with Dave a bit. And then when I released... Um, the jab of the hut short um he got in contact with him and said i thought you did a really good job would you consider interviewing me because i worked on yoda and 
Not only was he the assistant puppeteer on Yoda, he became the main puppeteer on Yoda um, during the time of The Empire Strikes Back because Frank Oz was contracted to go back and work on Sesame Street. And they were running late with Yoda because one of the many Yodas that they built had broken down and had to be fixed. And so Frank went off to um, California to carry on with Sesame Street and Dave, age 19, was given the job of puppeteering Yoda. Wow. Uh, and he's got he's a, such a lovely guy, Dave, and he can really talk about his experiences. You know, he did say to me when we started interviewing, you know, as soon as I start talking, you, you know, I, I will then just carry on and you might have to stop me. But he, 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 we spoke to him for about an hour. Um, so I've got a good hour's worth of material of him talking not only about Yoda, but Jabba, also working on um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, when he's worked on, you know, The Muppets and Fraggle Rock and all of those other, you know, films and, and TV series that we kind of grew up with. And he's still f- so passionate about his his job being a puppeteer. And um, he talks very enthusiastically about not only, you know, the things that have uh, passed, but also the things that are in the future for him as a puppeteer, talking about how digital technology is um, influencing things now. So, yeah, we had a great time and we were lucky enough not only to beg and borrow some some kit to shoot it, um, and I bought a couple of broadcast microphones. Again, see, my hobby costs me money. <laughs> um, I got one of my colleagues who's a, a cameraman because I work as a, a kind of a live editor on sport um, in the UK and around the world. And one of my friends said, well, I, I co-own a, uh, a camera with my brother. I could use that. So I paid for him to fly from... Ireland over to the UK and we got to shoot it at Madame to Swords at their new Star Wars exhibition up there where they've created a very faithful reproduction of uh, of Yoda himself so that's in the backdrop so each one of these things that I do I'm trying to step things up a little bit and um, yeah we've it's looking really nice actually and what's great about it is there's so many people that are passionate about these subjects that people are offering to help me you know there's a friend who's a friend of the, my cameraman friend who's offered to color grade it for me and um you know try and match the shots between the two cameras that we shot with and i'm learning this is the great thing about it for me is i'm learning constantly i'm learning how to produce these things how to direct you know how to edit um i've got a friend of mine who's been with me since um Radio the Lost Ark, he does all my posters and illustrations and things. He's come over and we sit there and watch the footage through and he's trying to create some interesting things to paint Dave's words with. So where you know, where maybe footage isn't available. Um so yeah, we've got a great little team now. Um and they they're in it for the long run. If I if I do end up getting a studio to say yes, come and do some stuff for us, they're coming with me. So do you have uh more feature uh projects in the works? I know on your on your website you'd say I'd love to work on Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, etc. But also on other films including The Shining, Chinatown or Seven Samurai, but I'd only tackle these in an official capacity. I'm still waiting for that call from the right owners. Um <laughs> what what else are you are, are you gonna do more features or is, you know are you kind of taking a break until you can kind of cut a deal with somebody? That's right. Am I ever gonna see uh, it's Chinatown the full feature? <laughs> No. Oh, <laughs> Sadly oh not. man. You just, heard, you just heard my heart break right here <laughs> on the show. The Chinatown thing was, um, this is a relatively convoluted story, but I'll try and make it as quick as possible. One afternoon I was sitting at home, I got a message on Facebook Messenger in that strange kind of others folder. And <laughs> it said, uh, hi, I represent Brett Ratner. Um, he would like to chat to you about projects. I said, okay. 
where do you want to meet? He said, well, he's out in Budapest at the moment shooting Hercules with uh, The Rock. (laughs) I said, okay, I'm going to be in Budapest as from tomorrow, just by happenstance, because I was working on the Formula One Grand Prix, the motor racing out there. That's that's my regular job. Um, I travel around Europe and the world doing that. So I went out there, I was invited on set, got to meet The Rock and a few other, you know, big film stars, got to sit there and watch a movie being made, albeit not one of the best movies in the world, um, for a couple of hours and got to chat with um, Brett in the car back into the city. Traffic was terrible, so we were chatting for two hours about how we were going to make one on Chinatown and he's got to deal with Warner Brothers and he's got to deal with Netflix and he needs content and we can do books and we can do online stuff. All this fantastically enthusiastic chat, all at a million miles an hour because it's Brett Ratner. Um, <laughs> and that wrangled on for a couple of years. And ultimately, what it came down to was that Brett had his deal with Rat Pack um, that he'd made with James Packer. They had a deal to do 75 movies, I think it was, with Warner Brothers and help finance them. And they both made tens of millions of pounds making the Lego movie and Gravity. And so he had bigger fish to fry. He'd gone from this guy trying to get little bits of content for Netflix and online and make books for his publishing company to a guy who's handling these massive, massive um, financiers for for these movies. So um, that was one of the reasons. One of the other reasons was Warner Brothers got interested in what I was offering but then had a reshuffle. Um, So the people that were saying yes were no longer in a position to say yes to what I was offering. And the people that replaced them were starting on new things themselves. Um, so it was it's some very bad timing there. But I'm now talking to another big studio. And last night I put together, I think, a showreel of two minutes to sort of say what a filmumentary is. Because the higher you get, the less they want to read and the less they want to watch. Right, right. I found. So I've done, a, I've done a four-page proposal. I've done a five-year plan. I've done a one-page proposal. I've done a few little Skype meetings and chats. And we're just now at the point where we have got it to the legal department and they're kind of a little bit worried about licensing. And we're trying to prove to them that it can still fall within the budget that we put in, in the first place. And if it comes off, it's going to keep me busy probably for the next few years. Um, and that will be, and that's where most of my energy has gone. Hence just doing these shorts. So to answer your question, um, you asked about half an hour ago. Um, <laughs> filmumentary feature-length ones. I still love to do them. I just feel like I'm making good headway in the direction that I want. That it would feel like a backward step at the moment if it wasn't in an official capacity. I mean, I did look at one point at doing one on John Carpenter's The Thing. That's uh, a favorite around these parts for sure. Oh yeah. I did contact the Kubrick estate, and they gave me a very direct answer within minutes of my email landing that they didn't want any involvement with me at all. Wow. Wow. I even got banned from going to the Kubrick archive. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. yeah I, I booked an appointment up there to go and see everything because I'm a huge Kubrick fan. You know, I love his work. I, the Shining is one of my favorite movies. And the day before I was due to go, the guy who runs it there got an email from this, the Kubrick um, estate saying, that I'm making a filmumentary on The Shining. Don't know where they got that from, and that I'm not allowed to go to the archive. So, wow. yeah, and it, it's really frustrating. You know, when I when I approached um, then a year later about doing one on The Shining after I'd had this sort of momentum with Warner Brothers and everything, 
I know for a fact that in that archive, there are 40 hours of material that Vivian Kubrick shot for the making of The Shining, which is what, 18 minutes long or something. Yeah, right. There is a film just sitting there. Begging. It's, it's, it's oh, all there. That's insanity. That is insanity. I even offered to do it for free and put any profit made back into the archive. And they said categorically no. And they, and they give you no justification as to why you they don't want to be any part of a project like this? No, no just no justification. And I did I did ask because I said, you know, I wanna I want to make each thing I do a learning process and I wanna if I'm put in this position again, maybe I can learn from from this experience. But they just said don't contact us again. Um, you know, very short, very blunt, very um very to the point, no involvement, don't ask again, it's not gonna happen. Seems like um, Kubrick's always kind of had that uh, secretive nature, though. So maybe it's just kind of reflected yeah, in the archives yeah, think, people know. I think maybe that they're confusing um, someone's passion, you know, the sort of passion that I have for these movies. And, okay, I'm pulling my resources from all, all over the place and I'm taking things that are owned by other copyright owners. Um, maybe they see that from a very sort of cynical business point of view, you know. I, I don't know, because I, as I said, I any profit that I would make on something like that, I would happily feed it back into, into their archive. But, um, yeah, a real shame really, because I, I don't know. I, I think that maybe they were stung by that documentary room two, three, seven. Yeah. So I know that they used oh, sure, yeah. in that without the permission of the estate, without the permission of Warner brothers. Um, there were legal proceedings, I think started and then they realized, hang on, it's a documentary it's informative, it's educational, it falls under fair use. And I think maybe they were stung by that so that any other project that they're, um, you know, they're offered involvement with just is a flat no now. Um, real shame. But, That's you know. one of those, though, you know, give it five or ten years, somebody's going to retire and positions yeah. change. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a Maybe. real shame. That yeah. you know, it's sort of you've you've already I think preemptively answered the the question that that hit me uh, straight between the eyes as I was looking at your Twitter feed uh, uh, and just 19 hours ago, uh, up late trying to make the dream happen. Uh, <laughs> you said on Twitter, which I found fascinating. Is, is this uh, this is this is the dream for you? How do you characterize the dream for this project uh, uh, in in your sort of five to ten year plan? Well, you know, that tweet really was about, I got a call from one of the people I'm dealing with in Los Angeles, uh, the studio that I'm, I'm talking to, who said that they're going to go to a meeting next week to talk to one of the very top bosses. And, you know, these are executives who are trying to invent projects. So they, they feel around and they have a look around about who's doing cool things online. And, you know, would they be willing to, to put a proposal together? And, and they're trying to you know, justify their jobs as much as the rest of us. So this was about putting a show reel together and showing it to one of the top bosses at this studio um, to see if it was a viable option. You know, they think it is as an executive, but does their boss think it is? And this is the the point where we got to with um, with Warner Brothers before. But the dream for me really is to, you know, be given the permission to do it. Because every time I release one of these, um, I do worry that, you know, somebody's going to knock on my door and say, right, you know, you're, you're using material in an inappropriate manner. But what I do hope is that people understand, you know, as I said before, what I am doing it and what, what I am doing and why I am doing it. Um, I don't want to do it officially to make money. 
I want to do it officially so that I can have access to resources that I wouldn't otherwise have access to. You know, one of the things, one of the selling points with the filmumentary format, I think, and me doing them is that it's kind of my voice and it's, it's a, hang on, a fan did this? You know, I think a lot of people are excited by that idea and maybe doing an official one would not have that same cachet. But if a studio allowed me to do it, I didn't hang over me and tell me what to do. Um, that really is the dream, you know, to go out there and open an archive, go in there, see what material is available and see if, um, see if it's possible to make one of these on another film. Because the thing with Star Wars and Empire and Jedi and Raiders and Jaws, there's so much material out there. I know I could make filmumentaries on them. Maybe not Empire, as I said before. <laughs> but, you know, if I'm looking at other films, if I look at, say, Superman or Gremlins or Chinatown, as I did when I was chatting with Warner Brothers, I don't know how much stuff they've got. They might have, you know, weeks of dailies and, and outtakes and alternate scenes and on-set audio and interviews that they didn't use for their making of at the time of release, you know, or they might not have anything. Um, what I'm hoping is that the studio that I'm dealing with at the moment, going on previous record, it looks like they may well have some material that's usable. Um, and... Yeah, I'm just sort of, you know, in my head, it's just these big gates opening. <laughs> I go in and I start to delve through all these um, all these boxes. And, you know, you watch something like um, when they did the final cut of um, Blade Runner. I was just going to add Blade Runner was on my list. When can I when can we get that <laughs> film you mentioned well, on Blade Runner? One of the guys that worked on that and produced that um, Dangerous Days documentary um, Charles de Lazarica, I think that's how you pronounce his name. I'm kind of friends with him online and we chat about things. And he very kindly said one day that he had a dream that he was told he had to make the ultimate making of Raiders. And he woke up and was relieved to realize that I'd already done it, oh. which is a really <laughs> nice thing to hear because I'm such a big fan of what he did on, on uh, Blade Runner. And Dangerous Days is pretty completist, but it is a documentary in the sort of typical documentary style. A filmumentary is different because you're watching it in the, the sort of fixed timeline of the movie, which can make it um, easy to do in some ways, but really difficult to do in others because films aren't shot in that order, of course, for the most part. Right, so right. you can't have somebody talking about the first scene, you know, being the end of the movie and it was great and we had a great time. So I have to find bits that kind of match and, and, and work um, in, that, in that kind of narrative. Um, but yeah, he did say to me, I said to him, do you think there is room for a Blade Runner filmumentary? And he just replied, do it. And oh. I would love to. I would love to. Um, How but cool would that be? I, do you know, I did do a project once that got lost on that same hard drive as Star Wars Begins and didn't get recovered. It was called Blade Runner Replicated, and it was all the different versions of Blade Runner in a quad split. Wow. Highlight, yeah. Highlighting all the differences between the different versions, the work print, the international cut, the domestic cut, and the final cut. Um, and yeah, that got lost, unfortunately, but Blade Runner is one of the films I'm, you know, really passionate about. I watch it several times a year. I've seen it in the cinema for the last four years in a row, um, because of different screenings here and there around London. So yeah, again, would love to, I'd love to do Alien, you know, um, the original Alien movie, but, um, what I'm trying to do at the moment with this, with this studio is talk to them about films, not only that are way 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 in the past but also have got a future you know um there are films that studios have made that have kind of got buried 
Um, they were successful at the time, let's say, but people seem to think that science fiction blockbusters started with Star Wars. They didn't. You know, <laughs> they go way, way, way further back. And if I can get access to this material, I'm pretty sure I could, you know, um, create something interesting and compelling. So we'll see. Every one of these is a feasibility project at the end of the day. <laughs> if, there's, if, there, if there's not the material there, then it can't be made. Um, you know, the, one of the other reasons I like doing these is because the people who are involved in these movies are not going to be with us <laughs> for a, a very long time. You know, we're, I'm talking about movies, what, mid-70s was Jaws, you know, late 70s Star Wars. There were people on that that were in their 40s and 50s when they made it. And, um, you know, there are people disappearing daily, of course, and these stories are disappearing with them. So I kind of feel there's an imperative to... Um, to record these stories and to to share them, they're amazing things to watch. It's uh, I, I think it's uh, easy to say that uh, people like us are just so grateful that you are out there doing these. I mean, it's just um, it's so informative, and and you know, putting a podcast together, the amount of research we do, just trying to track down information about the movies we're talking about. And then we look at what you do, and you're putting together these. It's like, wow, that's just it, it. Really, kind of blows me away. I'm like, I, I'm hang, just hang it up. We're done. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's nice to hear that, and it's nice to hear that there are people out there enjoying them. Because you never know when you you know you end up getting four million hits. Is that four million people pressing play and pressing stop five seconds later, or is it people actually watching them through and enjoying them? But um, no, it's always good to hear feedback. You know, I always try to reply to comments on my Vimeo channel as well, and sort of engage with those people because those people are me you know they're I want to see stuff I mean at the moment I'm watching there's a guy called nerd writer does a, a thing called nerd writer he's doing some fantastic videos not always about film but some of his film stuff is great there's right. another guy called Tony Zoo who does every frame of painting absolutely um, I think his stuff is fantastic all very different from from what I do but you know myself and Tony we support each other on Patreon you know I give him a few dollars each time he produces something he gives me i think if we just didn't do it we'd be in the same position financially <laughs> but um, um, but you know it's just it's a nice gesture um he, we've been in contact for some time and we've talked about you know all those sort of difficult copyright issues and what projects next and people's expectations because that's the thing with the internet isn't it people watch these and go okay wh what's next where's the next one why haven't you done it yet you know um but what's been good about people finding out you know they've oh, wow I've just found this inside Jaws thing hang on wait a minute he did Empire Jedi Star Wars and Raiders as well that's fantastic so you know you've got 10 hours or so to watch there um but with the shorts I'm able just to keep sort of plodding along and um my intention was to do one every couple of months but uh yeah that hasn't really worked out <laughs> a couple of months yeah but there are there are periods of time when I, my work isn't as busy. So at the moment mm. over the winter, I have not got as much work on. Um, so I'm able to do these shorts. But um, I think come kind of March, April, when the Formula One season starts again, I may uh, not have as much time. Well, they're brilliant. I, they, we just love it. We love the role you serve in the in the community. And um, just thank you so much for, for being a part of it. Where where would you like people to find you primarily? What's your where where do you send people uh, to, straight to the website or the Vimeo channel? What's your favorite? Well, it's it's a job in itself keeping everything updated. But um, if you go to at Jamie SWB on Twitter and also on to Filmumentaries on Facebook, it's generally where I post my kind of you know my regular things but filmumentaries.com as well 
okay. I'll write a little blog about each project that I do, uh, just giving a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. Just search for Filmumentaries on, on Google and uh, a whole bunch of things will come up. Jamie Benning, Filmumentaries.com. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, and I really appreciate your, uh, your, your feedback and your, your comments and everything. So, um, yeah, it's been really nice talking to you. And thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this episode of The Next Real Shorts. On behalf of Andy Nelson and Jamie Benning, I am Pete Wright, and we will catch you next time on The Next Real. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.